everyone. Welcome to News and Brew Sports Biz, our podcast series that advocates for the financial voices in college athletics and features new developments impacting the business of college sports. I'm Katie Davis. And I'm Ken Kurzel. Over the past few months, we've been receiving more questions from our higher education clients about the blockchain, cryptocurrency, and NFTs. So for the month of June, we're releasing two episodes where we're talking with thought leaders in cryptocurrency and NFTs. And as I've done my research, I feel like my mind has been expanded into the possibilities of how universities and more specifically athletic departments can utilize this technology to your advantage. So we're going to kick off our first interview on cryptocurrency and follow that up with our take on proper accounting and tax treatment for cryptocurrency, which hopefully will address many of your questions that result because of limited guidance available at this time. Joining us today to talk about cryptocurrency and higher education is Ruth Harpool, Payment Services Advisor for Campus Guard. Welcome, Ruth. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ken. Thank you. Ruth consults with higher education institutions in the areas of treasury operations, payments, and payments risk management. She has over 30 years of experience in banking services, banking operations, nonprofit treasury cash management, and payments management. Her experience includes over 18 years in the treasury office at Indiana University. Ruth leverages her insight, expertise, and hands-on knowledge to help Campus Guard's clients discover hard and soft cost savings, increase revenue, and reduce risk while focusing on compliance and security. And recently, Ruth has been sharing her knowledge on blockchain and cryptocurrency around the industry, and we're so excited to have her join us today. So Ruth, will you start off talking about why it's so important to start learning about digital assets now to get ahead of the curve? Sure. You, you know, I think there's a lot of situations in higher education where um, they're, we're behind the curve a little bit, especially with new and emerging treasury and payment technologies and payment solutions. Cryptocurrencies is we are not in that situation right now. Uh, we are not behind the curve. We are on the curve. This is where this is when we need to be planning. So now's the time to look at policies, look at your procedures to incorporate the possibility of accepting crypto into those policies and into your institution. If you wait until a donor comes to you, then you've waited too long because of the volatility of cryptocurrency, right? I mean, it could change within minutes. Um, you, a donor could knock on your door today and say, I want to make a donation. And you might say, okay, great. Let me go figure out how to get the donation. And 30 days later, you get back to them and the value of their currency has dropped dramatically in that time frame, or it's increased dramatically. So waiting is not an option when a donor is ready to donate crypto. Waiting is an option when a donor wants to donate cash. That doesn't change. If a donor wants to donate with a credit card, that doesn't change. The value of what they want to donate doesn't change. The value of crypto does. Mm, absolutely. So, Ruth, we're starting to see some of with our clients and just others, you know, within the industry that um, university endowments and foundations are often now accepting cryptocurrencies as donations. Um, and that we've also seen some headlines where there's some universities that are even talking about accepting it as a form of payment for tuition. Um, for those that are getting into the space, um, what kind of key insights do you think they need to know? Yeah, you know, I think the, the first thing institutions need to do is learn the language. It can be very intimidating language. When, um, one thing that we learn, and, and I used to be in banking as well, but one thing that we learn in banking and in treasury and in payment management is that when somebody comes 
to you and they're in a hurry to do something, it sends red flags up. If they come to you and they're in a hurry to make a transaction or have you initiate a transaction and they use language that you're not 100% comfortable with, it sends additional red flags up. So avoid the red flags, learn the language, understand what the terminology is, um, be comfortable with it. Take as an example, the, the term exchange. Well, what does that mean? Is it just a place where you go and trade things? Or is there value added? Is there actual financial advice given? So um, understanding what those terms are is very valuable. Understanding what a hot wallet is versus a cold wallet and whether the institution wants to hold uh, its currency at all and whether it holds it in a hot wallet or a cold wallet is very, very important. I've also seen instances where donors will come to a school um, and by the core in the, uh, by offering them a donation or wanting to give them a donation, they also want to help the school or the foundation learn the process and learn the language. So a donor may help because a donor is maybe savvy in the crypto area where the school may not be. So it depends on the donors. Um, connection with the school and how valuable um, that connection is for them. So I think really, um, in addition to learning the language, the other thing that's extremely important is to stay up on what's going on. Um, understand where your state is when it's discussions, when it's legislators are talking about cryptocurrency, understand what the government is talking about. The US federal government is putting out um, various calls for information. And here's a whole bunch of questions that the Federal Reserve released. Here's a bunch of questions that the president's working group on cryptocurrencies and central bank digital currencies have released. They want to know what, what do we feel in the market? And so schools aren't shy in giving their opinion. And this is an area that they should definitely should not be shy about giving mm. their opinion in. We're teaching cryptocurrency and blockchain in higher education. Let's move from the academic side to the administrative side mm. and make sure that the administrative voice is heard. It's not just about teaching the youngsters of today that are attending our colleges and universities about what their future is going to be and what maybe a potential financial base future might be. But it's also about making sure that we understand the management of it, how it's created, what the regulations ongoing might be, uh, and how they will affect schools, universities, foundations going forward. Yeah, and Ruth, um, you and I have talked before about this whole chicken and egg um, dynamic right now where schools who may want to start utilizing this technology are stuck in the middle between customer demand and technology being developed that's still going on right now. Um, so when does it make sense for a school to say, okay, I'm ready to start utilizing this technology as a form of payment? And what are some of the mechanics um, like um, you know, connection to the accounting systems and then things like that that need to be worked through? Sure. Uh, and I think these are great questions and things that schools need to consider. You mentioned earlier about some schools that may be taking crypto as tuition. Um, there may be a couple that are taking it directly that have set up exchange accounts that are allowing students to make a payment directly to an exchange account. But I've seen more instances where the school has hired an intermediary to um, 
and I don't want to name any of the intermediaries, but there's a number of them out there to name an intermediary where the intermediary would take the funds, convert it, take the crypto, convert it to a US dollar and send the donors, the student, I guess, the student's information and the US dollar to the school. So the headline says that the school accepts cryptocurrency for tuition, but really it's their intermediary that's accepting the crypto, converting it to US dollars and the school is getting the US dollars. So, so there's one thing, are, are intermediaries needed and would that be helpful in getting a school to be able to accept it um, from a tuition perspective? The next thing is these back, these back end, let's call them legacy systems that universities have, these accounting systems that they have. How do you communicate the, the acceptance of a payment that came in by crypto into the university's legacy system? That system today is likely only registering US dollar transactions. It might take other foreign currency transactions to post in there, but the end of, at the end of the day, it's US dollar based accounting. So how do you get cryptocurrency converted into US dollar accounting? That, I haven't seen a solution for that yet. That's gonna have to be built by, uh, that connection has to be built by schools and foundations saying to vendors that are providing ways to accept crypto, I need a file that translates this to US dollars for me so that I can post it to my system. Um, and, or they need to go to the providers of these ERP systems that are their general ledger systems and say to them, you're going to have to, you're going to have to build a whole nother module that allows us to bring in blockchain data that has financial currency, cryptocurrency data in it and be able to translate and be able to report on that. That seems a lot more heavy of a lift to me than going to the vendors that are providing the ways to accept the payment and asking them to make that translation for you and provide you a API or a flat file or something else that you can ingest into your ERP system because the accounting has to be there. You still have to report it. And you guys know as well as I do, the IRS side is still there. And in order to comply with that, you have to be able to track it accurately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll get into some of the um, technology sides and some recommendations there as it relates to ERPs or donor development systems and even ticketing systems. Mm -hmm. um, but to touch first on, you talked about these intermediaries. And so, um, you know, really they are these third party payment processors and you know, ones we've heard of that a lot of universities um, and foundations are starting to investigate are entities like in Given and the Giving Block um, that do convert that crypto on um, to US dollars on behalf of the organization. So do these intermediaries help to improve efficiencies or reduce risks? Um, and would you recommend that they look into that as opposed to doing the direct conversion themselves? Yes, I, yes, I do think that they help improve efficiency and reduce risks uh, to varying degrees. So in Given and the Giving Block, I think are, are the only two businesses that I've seen in this space. There may be others, but they're the only two that I've seen in this space that specifically look towards how to help nonprofits. Um, so if you will, I think they can be considered as tour guides, trusted resources 
not financial advisors. They, they don't play the role of a financial advisor. And they're actually not the ones converting from the crypto to the US dollar. Those are the exchanges doing that. So um, I think both in Given and the Giving Block use an exchange called um, Gemini. So Gemini does has holds the wallets, holds the uh, ability to accept the crypto, converts it to US dollar, puts it in a US dollar account. But what Ingiven and the Giving Block have done is um, they've cut the um, onboarding time down that it takes to open an account for a, for a not-for-profit to open an account. Look, um, if you're a not-for-profit, whether you're opening a bank account, a, a custodial account, a securities or an exchange account, or a crypto exchange account, the application, identification, verification, um, establishment of access privileges, it can all get very complicated. And it's all very different because you're a nonprofit. If you're a for-profit, the identity verification information is different than if you're a not-for-profit. Who has to give their social security number, for example, is different. And so it takes a little bit of time for businesses that are not accustomed to working with non-for-profits like many of these exchanges uh, to understand what those intricacies are. And that's where InGiven and the Giving Block have stepped in and helped one exchange in particular figure out how to get the onboarding process of opening an exchange account, reporting on the detail, even so far as giving donor receipts. Mm -hmm. uh, they've, uh, this is where they help. So I really look at them like tour guides, trusted advisors, not necessarily, they're certainly not fiduciaries. Uh, they're not financial advisors, but what's the language? What should I know about? And this is where I see them playing a very large role. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because um, I've heard, and, and we actually have another podcast episode with um, someone, uh, Stephen F. Austin, talking about how they've implemented um, a platform for tokenizing um, different assets on, on their piece of the blockchain. Um, and it was interesting because as they went through the buy-in process with campus, um, legal and others said, you know, it was really important to not be seen as an exchange. And then all of the administrative burden around that by doing it directly. So something like this uh, would certainly help reduce risk exposure um, by relying on one of these tour guides. But what would you recommend as far as the financial advice side then, if you need a, another intermediary to kind of help navigate some of that. Sure. Um, every university, college, and foundation that I have ever worked with already has investments in securities, in um, other items, stocks, bonds, property, things like that. They already have a financial advisor there go to the same place. And if they don't have the answers, then ask them for direction on where to find an advisor. Um, but in most cases, every one of those types of advising firms, financial advising firms, traditional financial advising firms, if you will, every one of those has somebody or a team of people that are working or are already up to speed on what, what's going on. Um, you know, the other thing, and I probably should have mentioned this earlier, actually, I did mention policies earlier um, that universities should think about, but 
I, they need to look closely at their existing policies. And I'll cite one in particular, if a school has an environmental, social and governance policy, an ESG policy mm -hmm. that um, um, strictly governs whether they can invest in or operate in anything that is um, non-renewable energy intensive, um, then they're gonna need to consider that policy in terms of cryptocurrency. Not, not all cryptocurrency is energy intensive um, and not all cryptocurrency on blockchains uh, uses renewable energy. So, or non-renewable energy, excuse right. me. So um, it's about them understanding what their existing policies are. Do you, have you defined an existing policy that actually prohibits you from accepting blockchain on the existing blockchain platform because it is extremely non-renewable energy intensive well then does it do you any good to go through writing a policy determining who whether you can and cannot accept it which cryptos you will accept if at the end of the day the policy says you can't then you can't or you shouldn't right so it's a broad look at policies to make sure that you're doing what you should be doing uh, so just want to go back and pick that up because I yeah. think that's an important part. No, it is. And we've definitely heard a lot more recently with the environmental focus of cryptocurrencies and all that. So that's a, that's a great point. Um, you alluded earlier to um, a big issue with cryptocurrencies, which is the market volatility issues, uh, which we've seen very recently here, some, some, some very large ones. But um, you may mention even like a one-day lag or an intraday lag in liquidation of a donation could result in large fluctuations of value. So what kind of risk does this volatility pose in the higher education or college athletic space? And are there ways that those risks can be mitigated? Um, and also on the flip side, are there opportunities out there that would make those risks worth it? Yeah. So I think, you know, again, the risk is the volatility and, and what and I had someone ask me this a couple of weeks ago, what determines the value of crypto? And my answer was supply and demand right. and social media. <laughs> and I think you have to throw social media in there. Uh, mm -hmm. You get one um, U.S. government official that says this is vaporware and it doesn't it, it's not real. There's no value pegged to it. And if you're not an early adopter or a believer in opportunities that may come to the future, then suddenly you're like, I don't want any part of it. It has no regulations. There's no, there's nothing that backs it. There's no US dollar or fiat currency that backs it. So I think that's, that's important to know that social media or media in general, in addition to supply and demand, which is different than every other currency we've ever used in society, right? Uh, even when we use shells early on, um, if somebody said that shell is of no value, it doesn't make any difference because someone else would say that it would be. So um, now in terms of um, fluctuations in price, the, I think the risk is and uh, the risk is that you lose value. Um, you or you could lose a donor. Um, or you could lose an opportunity. There was a, a time and I uh, let me give you let me give you some numbers here. On May 2nd of 2021, as an example, the value of one Bitcoin was $58,232.32. So if a donor knocked on your door on May 2nd or May 1st and said, I want to donate 10 Bitcoins to you, $580,000, right? And you said, oh, great. Uh, we don't have a way to do that yet. 
let's get something set up and we'll get back to you. And you got back to them three weeks later, which seems like a reasonable amount of time to open an account. You get back to them three weeks later. Unfortunately, three, two weeks later, actually not even three weeks, but two weeks later, the value of that one Bitcoin dropped from 58,000 to 34,000. So now that 10 Bitcoin donation, which was 580,000 now becomes 340,000. So, you know, if the donations were bigger than that, and this is something I said earlier at a conference when I was speaking with a group from the Higher Education Forum of Nakubo, um, I said, look, the difference could be between naming rights on a building and a parking privilege, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and it could be a matter of days that yeah. cause that. Is there intraday risk? Yes. It's not as bad as extended day risk, right? right? Uh, but the intraday risk is if I donate a Bitcoin or any other crypto to you now, and you have an automated process set up with your exchange that as soon as it comes in, it converts immediately to US dollars, then your risk is that is that, that daylight in between those seconds between converting. Will the value change in seconds? It could. Will it change dramatically in seconds? Likely not. Depends on who tweets what, but likely not, right, in seconds. But in days and in certainly in weeks, it could change. And so um, having the, again, going back to um, the exchange and going back to your trusted advisors, having a process set up, if your institution decides you're going to accept crypto, then the next thing you're going to have to decide is now what? Are you going to hold it in crypto or are you going to go ahead and convert it to U.S. dollars, to a U.S. dollar account? And if you're going to convert it to a U.S. dollar account, is that an automated process or is that a manual process where one of your staff has to get in and move it from one account to another to make the conversion. I'd recommend if you're going to convert it to US dollars that you set, that you find an exchange that will um, auto convert for you. And right. you can set those instructions up. Mm-hmm. And then it's auto converted and it's sitting in a US dollar account in that exchange. Now you've got another thing to think about. If your institution says that your available balances, that your cash, your US dollar balances has to be um, backed by insurance, FDIC, for example, in a bank account, then can you hold that US dollar in that exchange? And so here's where you have to do a little bit more research to understand whether that exchange is associated with a financial institution or whether it's not. If it is associated with a financial institution, then it's highly likely that that US dollar account is backed by FDIC insurance, even though it's sitting in the exchange. If it's not, then you may not have any insurance on that account whatsoever. And so you need to be able to get it out of your US dollar exchange account and into your bank account where it does have that FDIC coverage. So I feel like I danced around your question a little bit, (laughs) but I I think there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of intricacies and it's not just, okay, I've decided to accept crypto. Yay. Let's go. No, it's, I've, I've decided I want to accept crypto. Now let's look at our policy. Can we, all right, now let's look at an exchange. How do we get it set up? Um, and how, how will it function? What are the operational steps that we need to know? How do I report on it? What kind of reports do I get? Is it in us dollars? Is there FDIC insurance or any other insurance out there that can cover it? Yeah. 
lots of good things. Yeah, it's a lot of good information. And I'm so excited you're sharing all of this because our listeners and a lot of people that have been asking us a lot of questions, this is going to just the light bulb, I can <laughs> see it coming on for them. Um, so, you know, as the light bulb starts coming on for them, um, you and I have previously talked about how one thing that people in higher education can do is really engage with the, their technology business partners and how schools get what these vendors deliver, yet vendors sell what they think schools need. And so there's maybe a communication gap um, or perceptions, assumptions, you know, and, and there's not really any specifics because it's so rare that you see collaboration there. Um, also, from my experience working with athletic departments, I rarely see my clients completely happy with what their technology vendors offer. Um, so what can our listeners do now to help shape the technology as it's developed? Yeah, um, and, and I think it's a great question. We, we're, in a, we're in a space with cryptocurrency that as, as businesses that may want to accept it, we, uh, we get to work with businesses that are trying to figure out how to accept it. So if you think about the card processing companies, right, Visa and MasterCard and the terminals, they're working today to figure out how to accept cryptocurrency at point of sale. So the conversations that we need to have as institutions, we need to take us from being passive adopters to being active adopters, if you will. So if I'm a passive adopter, whatever my vendor brings to me, that's how I'm going to do it. If I want to be an active adopter, then I'm going to find a way to take crypto myself to make it work in my ERP, to make it register in my sales system and my cash register system and my online system, whatever that is. But I think there's a middle road there where we can be, um, we can passively, uh, to an extent, adopt what our technology providers want to give to us. But now is the time they're building these solutions. Now is the time to give them a call, to, to ask them when they're calling on you quarterly or monthly or annually, which is too late for someone to be calling on you, but a quarterly, right, to say, what are you guys doing with cryptocurrency? Hey, um, whatever, credit card processor, how, have you given any thought to how in six months or a year from now, I might be able to accept crypto um, at, um, at, the, at the football stadium for the fall season that's coming up? Uh, have you? Well, talk to me about what you're doing, because here's some of the complexities we see maybe underlying what our ways to be able to accept crypto. So let me tell you from my perspective as a business, what would help us, what our concerns are, um, what our hopes are, what our dreams are, that kind of thing. And then as you're building it, put this in mind. Or if you're putting a customer service focus group together, count me in. Because I'm gonna give you a perspective vendor that you don't have. You have a technology perspective. You, you know what you want to deliver and I know what I need or I think I know what I need. So together, if we have these conversations, it's not a passive adoption and it's not an active adoption, it's a collaboration. And it's the collaboration that we need right now so that our vendors are not delivering solutions that only half meet our needs. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, it is a great opportunity that, um, you know, athletic departments are spread really thin right now, but I think someone in the business office should start to really look into this and engage with vendors 
because I think investing the time up front is going to pay huge dividends down the road and being an early adopter in this space um, can help, um, you know, potentially identify new revenue streams that could come off of just having these more advanced technologies, growing fan engagement and brand awareness. There's all sorts of things. And we're going to actually talk about this in our next podcast episode with how it's being adopted at another university. But I think it's just so important um, to really pay attention to everything that Ruth has just said, uh, because uh, I think it'll go a long way and help make you more confident as you start to adopt it as well as if you've been involved from the ground up. Yeah. You know, and I think, Katie, the other thing that I'd say, and I, I, I say this a lot, especially with cryptocurrency, is um, small bites chew thoroughly, right? How do you eat an elephant? You take small bites one bite at a time. And I've added the chew thoroughly thing. So small bites, chew thoroughly. Don't expect that a solution is going to be broadly comprehensive to cover every one of your needs. So on the athletic side, can you take crypto at, uh, for ticket sales, for marketing um, events, um, and for concession sales, and for um, apparel sales? Okay, well, let, let's not throw everything into the bus and try and do it all at once. You know, take a small bite. Maybe um, concession sales isn't the best place to start, right? But maybe ticket sales is. And so what you want to do is be able to add an additional way to take a payment, cryptocurrency, to your existing model. How do you do that? talk to your vendors, talk to the vendors in those spaces. And there are some very, very good vendors in those spaces that are working to deliver things today. Um, talk to those vendors and help them understand what your needs are and that you, I don't need a comprehensive. You want to work comprehensive, work comprehensive, but I just want to look at one area right here. Let's get good at this. Let's get successful at this, put it under our belts, learn a little bit more about how it works. And then we'll take the next step, take the next bite. And we'll chew us thoroughly on that one as well. Well, that's great. And um, to use your last analogy, you've given us a lot to chew on here. And it's, it's been really, really good. Um, one of the other things that Katie and I enjoy as much as digital assets, and we could go on for hours about digital assets, um, but we also enjoy good uh, craft beer and coffee and other drinks and stuff. And um, that's the, the bruise part of our um, discussion. So what, uh, and that can extend to all sorts of beverages, uh, but what, what would you like to share that you've either had recently or going to enjoy uh, here in the upcoming time period? Yeah, so actually, uh, when I travel, and I'm blessed to be have the ability to travel with Campus Guard, but when I travel, um, I like to taste the local beers. So whatever the local brews are in that area. I just recently got back from Savannah. Um, Savannah, uh, there's an island just off the coast there called Tybee Island. Tybee, there's a a local brewery called, I think it's called Tybee Island Brewery, but they have a, a beer called Tybee Island Blonde. It's, I I could just sit and drink a Tybee Island Blonde. And I was disappointed when I went to certain breweries or certain um, um, establishments in uh, Savannah that didn't have the Tybee Island Blonde. Mm -hmm. So, um, but if it's a blonde beer, that's usually my favorite. Um, but I'll tell you, my all-time favorite beer is... Um, it's an English pale ale, I believe. No, it's an English lager. It's called Old Speckled Hen. Mm -hmm. If you've never had an Old Speckled Hen, uh, my favorite Old Speckled Hen is served in a can. You open the can and then you pour it into the glass. And, you, you know, that 
there's there's something about the English part of that, but there's there's uh, the old speckled hen, not at all like a blonde beer, <laughs> not at all, but a very good, very good oh, beer. We love that, and that's exactly what Katie and I do is we love to enjoy the local breweries as we go about. Um, which, speaking of which, she and I are meeting some colleagues tonight uh, at a nearby local brewery that we really like, Blackadder Brewing. And uh, what do you plan to get there, Katie? Yeah, so I, I looked up on their tap list um, for this afternoon and um, they make uh, one of my favorites there. And I'm going to deviate from the usual IPAs that I talk about. Um, it's called Date Night and it's a Belgian quad. So that one's going to, I'm going to have to drink <laughs> very little of that one, but it's made with raw date sugar and it is really good. Wow, yeah, that sounds great. Where great are day. you? I might have to join you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'd be happy to host you, absolutely. And, um, yeah, come to Gainesville, Florida, and we'll take you around here. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> and I think I'll, uh, I will try to deviate too. You inspired me to do that. I, in addition to IPAs, I enjoy stouts. Um, and I saw on their tap list, they have one of my favorites, which is Old Rasputin, uh, which is from North Coast Brewing in Fort Bragg, California. Uh, it's an imperial stout that is just absolutely wonderful. So that's my plan for this evening. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, where can listeners go to learn more about Campus Guard, about cryptocurrency, or anything else that you think they need to know? So for Campus Guard, uh, certainly campusguard.com is our website, and you can find where we've, uh, we've got a couple webinars that we've posted out there. We've got some terminology on cryptocurrency that I've we've made public out there. I didn't create the definitions. Uh, I just collected them from various sources. There's a number of other places. Um, I would recommend uh, um, something called the Blockchain Research Institute. Uh, I believe that's a .org, but it is the Blockchain Research Institute, a phenomenal place for information, um, lots of free resources and information out there. And, uh, and then, oddly enough, you'd be surprised the information you can find out on YouTube uh, on the blockchain. Um, Gary Gensler, from, who used to be the chair of the Community Commodity Futures Trading Commission, who is now the chair of the SEC, in between those two stints, he did a class at MIT on cryptocurrency and blockchain. Wow. And every one of those courses is available for free out on YouTube. So check your sources, know where you're going, get good information. But, but there's a couple that I think would be valuable. Yeah, that's, that's excellent information. I look forward to checking those out as well. I actually last week heard about um, a book called Blockchain for Babies. That's literally one of those baby board books um, mm -hmm. on Amazon. So I'm even interested to see what that is, because maybe that's a place where some people could start at first as well. Um, but this is all great information, and we will continue to monitor new developments as they come out. Great. Thank you. As promised in the intro, we're continuing this episode with a follow-up segment about some insights our team has gained as it relates to the limited accounting and tax guidance that is out there on the topic. I'm curious to see how Katie's going to be able to translate our research to our listeners while keeping their interest. <laughs> Well, I'm not as quick as the micro machines guy, but I'll do my best. I'll try to break it down um, by federal regulatory bodies, tax, accounting, and auditing. So four different areas. So number one, federal regulatory bodies. Uh, currently, there are differing opinions within federal regulatory bodies, such as the SEC, um, and to clarify, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, about whether it's a commodity or a security and whether those are even mutually exclusive in a digital world. So right now, as of June, uh, early June, 2022, it's unclear on who owns the regulatory guidance 
on these items. Um, currently, all parties agree it's not a currency since it's not issued by the U.S. government. However, I suppose that's also subject to change because um, El Salvador is the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, number two, there's the IRS. The IRS says for federal income tax purposes that virtual currency is treated as property and general tax principles applicable to property transactions apply to transactions using crypto. So when you sell virtual currency, you must recognize any capital gain or loss on the sale subject to limitations per the capital asset rules. For tax purposes, uh, you will adjust to market, unlike GAAP, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, also, if you accept virtual currency donations, the IRS says your donor acknowledgement responsibilities are to provide written acknowledgement as you would any other donation and treat it as a non-cash contribution. This includes specific 990 reporting if applicable, filing a form 8282 if the virtual currency is liquidated, and signing a form 8283 if a donor is claiming a deduction of more than $5,000. Number three, accounting. There's no prescriptive guidance on digital assets in GAAP, so treatment defaults to similar standards based on the fact patterns. There is an AICPA guide out there on digital assets. Long story short is that the AICPA stance is that accounting for cryptocurrency is similar to that for an intangible asset since it can't be currency because, as I said before, not issued by a government. Caveats are made if you're an investment company, which of course is not applicable in the higher ed space, or if you're making an NFT yourself to sell, and in that case, you would uh, classify it as inventory. But for intangibles, that's held at amortized costs, less impairment. That means you write it down for impairment, but you can never write it back up. So if you got it at 20, it went down to 10 and then back up to 50, you have to keep it recorded at 10. Of course, there's a lot of debate about this and which digital assets should be subject to fair value. The FASBs just picked this topic up at their last board meeting for more research, but we wouldn't expect them to issue anything for at least a year. And then the GASB, of course, would be well after that. And number four, now I'm switching into my auditor hat. The good news, the public blockchain is a single source of truth that shows who owns what at any point in time. So your auditors can obtain your private keys stored in your digital wallet and search for them on places like Etherscan, which will help the auditor obtain some fairly concrete evidence. If you use a third-party custodian to hold your private key, your auditor may first send a confirmation to verify completeness and accuracy of your addresses, and then use those addresses to check on the public blockchain. Well, there you have it. Great job, Katie. <laughs> Thanks, and don't worry, we'll transcribe this and post it to our website so you can refer back to it. Make sure you also check out part two of our June podcast release for another episode specifically on the use of NFTs and other digital assets in the college athletic space. Thank you for tuning in. Cheers. To learn more about the James Warren Company Collegiate Athletics and Higher Education segments, go to jmco.com. And don't forget to sign up for insights to get our latest industry updates, news and events delivered straight to your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at JMCO Higher Ed and on LinkedIn for the latest news as the landscape of collegiate athletics and higher education is continually evolving.